Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I said the fuck, I Murray, I was going to punch him. I said, Murray, why would you do that? Oh, yeah, you got a, you got a name, you sell papers. Said, That's pretty fucked up, man. Yeah. Happened to me, too, with the New York Post. Yeah. When this book came out, they wrote the Sunday, big front page headline, Talented Assholes. And they showed pictures of all the uh, anchors, but the only problem is I didn't say it about any of them. I said it about Croft, and they didn't even show his face up there. Mm. But they just distorted the whole thing. Well, all, all these newspapers and even like we talk about the Enquirer, you know, everything's a splash headline. That's all it yeah. is. And that's funny when uh, I, say I did look through a little bit. I didn't read the whole thing, which I'm going to read. Well, I'm so fucking busy. But I like the idea but it's easy reading. When, Trump, when Trump said about that she was the, uh, uh, the dam, the wet dam or something. Oh, the uh, Dylan was Howard. Wet, uh, her Dylan pussy Howard was always, always wet. Hoover Dam. But then Trump, he said because she was, yeah. I yeah. don't want to get oh, into that. Oh, did she today. talk? Did she? That talk? was he said that to Dylan. Howell. Yeah. Did she talk to me? Uh, did she mention me? Oh yeah. She says she still loves you. Some bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you got to pump her. And when I was with him at Steve uh, Ross's house two and a half years ago before the election, and I said to him, you know, Mr. President, I says you should apologize to Senator McCain's family. Right. He looks at me and he goes, you know, Bo, how long you know me? He says, 40 years. Um, who am I? I said, you're the president. Well, that's why I'm the president, because I do what I want to do. I looked in his eyes at that point, and my eyes could read it. I said, you're a fucking loser, you douchebag. And he lost that election because of his fucking attitude. He had some pretty good policies, but his attitude just fucking destroyed it. It's true. And I don't think he'll ever get elected. Whatever they got to do, cheat. Well, let's save it for this. Yeah. Like, I want to talk about some of this stuff yeah. because I want to bring up Bannon. You know? He's another fucking nut. Yeah. He threw all of his kids under the bus. Oh, you know? he's a fucking scumbag. I don't understand. Like I said, with that guy, the Gee, Gee, you're going to have to fill Spong. in my fucking Miles boxes. Spong. No, no. Yeah, and, and, and then all of a sudden. He goes, he's a fucking CIA operative. He's not a CIA I said, do me a favor. First of all, he was up, he looked like he was up for a fucking week, greasy looking guy. Yeah, yeah. This is when they were doing construction in the, uh, in the, in the White House. And he had another office on the side. Oh, okay. we're ready to go? Ready to go. Okay. Ready? Hi, everybody. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. Today, I have one of the most interesting people that I've ever interviewed. And this one makes it easy, too. He happens to be a friend of mine, a friend of mine for a long time, and he worked for another guy that I knew, a guy named Don Hewitt, and probably the most prolific TV news magazine of all times, and what is that clock? Tick, 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 60 minutes. And this is Ira Rosen. He wrote a book called The Ticking Clock, and Ira Rosen has a tremendous background. I'd just like to read a couple of the... Uh, background things. For over 25 years, 
Uh, Ira Rosen produced some of the most memorable, important, groundbreaking 60-minute shows. He has won every major award in broadcast journalism, including 24 National Emmy Awards, placing him in the top 10 of all time for Emmy Award winners. Uh, he is responsible for exposing something that affected a lot of Americans, this opioid thing. Finally, we got to the gist of all these kids walking around fucking stoned, and we were able to get to the gist of what was going on. And thank you for saving a lot of Americans. You know, a lot of things people say, wow, 60 minutes does this. You saved a lot of lives. Thank you. Uh, you're a former Neiman follow of journalism at uh, Harvard University, uh, senior producer, and one of the creators of Primetime used to be on ABC, hosted by our famous Diane Sawyer, Sawyer and Sam Donaldson. Uh, you started with the hidden cameras. You started bringing these things out. You were involved with the uh, Russian orphanages and the Mexican uh, mental, I hate using that word, retardation, mentally challenged centers. That's and you went on and on. And some of the biggest stories that were ever broken on 60 Minutes, you were the producer, you were responsible. We always have the correspondents doing the interviews, taking the credit, but to put that whole shit together takes a lot. And I, at times you had to travel when you had to meet that Abba Dabba Do over there in Iran. I mean, these were dangerous assignments over there. And when you're uh, setting one of our correspondents up to talk to one of these guys that could cut your head off, the same as they cut Pearl's head off, you know, you're, you're, you're in danger, and I know about security. Uh, and just a, a little one more thing. You won nearly every major tele-award. We said about 24 national e e Emmys, uh, four DuPont Awards. I know about this Peabody guy. You got two of those, two, six investigative. You go on and on. A lot of people don't know you were really responsible for one of the big stories was Three Mile Harbor. Three Mile Island, yeah. That's I wrote a book Three about... Mile uh, yeah. Three Mile Harbor's in East Hampton, but Three Mile <laughs> Island, good. So, Ira, let, let's, let's, take, let's take this Thank apart. You. And I, I've allotted a lot of time because this book, and I recommend it for reading. It is one of the most interesting things. And a lot of my life has touched upon a lot of your stories, and you know that. And we'd, I'd love to just... Let's, let's throw it out. Ticking clock, yes. So tell me, tell me, uh, where do we begin? We've known each other so long. I know, you started with Don Ute, who I met with Nick Pelleggi many years ago. Oh, yeah. And then uh, what was the other guy, uh, Sir, uh, uh, what was his name? He had a sir in front of it. Uh, uh, Howard Stringer. Sir Howard Stringer, yeah. Right. Howard was the best. Howard, good friends of mine. Yeah. We just go on and on. And we had a lot of friends. Don's genius. Let me tell you about it. And, yeah. And, and, now, this is Don Hewitt. This is Don Hewitt, who created 60 Minutes. His genius was to tell me a story. And people today have forgotten the art form of telling stories. Everybody's tweeting and yes yeah. and no and maybes. No, 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 no. Don believed that two people should sit down and be able to have a conversation, and that was also the trick of Mike Wallace and doing a good interview, because he would listen. You'd write 25 questions for him yeah. before an interview. You yeah. know what he would do? He'd take the question, put it underneath his leg, and then look at you and then have a conversation. When the conversation got a little boring, then he picked the question up and he'd do it. And that he learned from Hewitt. Hewitt was always about make your point, move forward. Make you, people are not stupid at home. You don't have to repeat yourself five times. And, and that was the art form. Well, you know, when you would see a 20-minute segment on 60 Minutes, people don't understand. That's 20 minutes, but 
weeks, maybe months have gone into that. Oh my God, and, yeah. and, and the dialogue, uh, you know, they, they adjust the dialogue and when, when it's starting to slow up, they'll speed it up. And I've made a few movies in my life and I know one thing is if you have that material, you're able to uh, adjust it to, to make it more interesting. Right. That's, that's the winner. That is the winner. And, and you mentioned, you know, before the earlier piece, the opiate epidemic story. Yeah. Now, we did that jointly with the Washington Post. And what was going on was Congress. Boy, I have no love affair with Congress. And hold on, and you're going to talk about the opiate now. Yeah. Then I want to talk about these son of a bitches with the insider trade that yes. you broke off. Yes, from. yeah. Listen, I always said that the more, you know, Robert Kennedy used to say that the, you know, that the more you know about a person, the worse they are talking about politics. Yeah. And that's the way it is with politicians. The more you know about these people, the mm. worse they look. And I'm talking both sides both of the sides. aisle. Both sides of the aisle. You know, and it doesn't weigh more one side or the other. They're both like that. So when we did the opiate epidemic, they were trying to neuter, they were trying to neuter the powers of the DEA, take away all the powers for enforcement against these big opiate companies. And but there were lobbyists in Washington with all these representatives. They had all the money, and they were collecting the money. And there was one guy, Congressman Marino, who created a piece of legislation, Pennsylvania guy, and Trump had just named him to be the new drug czar. Remember, we and talked about right, this. Right, right. And so when, when we do the story, and it was on 60 Minutes, literally, we have this story on 60 Minutes, and Marino neuters the DEA and takes away their powers, and the last line is, and President Trump has just named him to be the new drug czar. Within two days, it was withdrawn. It right? was withdrawn. The night it aired, he he said, uh, "Marino's a fine man." And I get a text from uh, Bannon that day. He mm. said, "When Trump says you're a fine man, you're that means you're toast." <laughs> and so Trump fired him within two days of the. Oh, broadcast. I know. Before before we start going to other stories, I wish that I was Don Hewitt. Because, boy, do we have a lot of ammunition here today. I mean, when you get a speaker in the House that goes in there kind of flat broke. Now right. she's worth $150 million. Her husband's got contracts. It was, there's, you're exactly there's right. There's so many things that if Bo was Don Hewitt and you were my, 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 my running back, wow. And I would have gone off, you know what I wanted after again? Again, this is not political. I don't give a crap. And the way I feel about Donald Trump, I'll say it publicly, he lost that election because of his friggin' attitude and his, con his condescending way about him, about everybody. When I told him right to his face, you know, Mr. President, you should apologize to Senator McCain's family. He was a true American hero. He looked at me, he goes, Bo, who am I? I said, you're the president. I said, you know, Mr. He goes, well, you're right. And you know why I'm the president, Bo? Is because I do what I want to do. I looked at him in his eyes, Ira, and I said to myself, you're a fucking loser. Because the loser in the sense that if you don't show compassion, love, feelings, this is what people hate. All you do is you Twitter. You knock people down. Yeah. People don't want to hear that crap. You know what? He could have been the one of the greatest presidents. He had some really good policies. And now we see what he caused us to get into this defuncation with the guy who's brain dead right now. And you, know, you don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican. We're going into a place when they bring on board, like this, uh, the guy who was the Secretary of State getting chewed out by the Chinese. You got the guy who was the Homeland Security guy, uh, Alejandro, or whatever the hell the guy's. Every aspect of what he hired are the problem people, because you are who you have around you. I want to get back to the insider trading story, but before I go there, I want, I, I totally, what happened is the press is now not 
throwing any punches at Biden. They're completely, where every day they were pounding Trump, pounding Trump, yeah, and pounding nothing. Trump. And you don't see this in the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's like they're giving him a pass. And if you look at the people he's surrounded himself with, they're all kind of part-timers. They're not, they're not uh, they, they come in, go government, they make, mm. they spend a year or two, then they go back and the high industry. The, the, the vice president, all she does is friggin' laugh. And now they, the press comes out and says, what a great job she's doing. She was in charge of supposedly closing up that border and she's doing a great job. She has never been there. No, my point is that you gotta, <coughs> if, you, if you're gonna, if you're gonna bash Trump, the yeah. way they bash Trump, then then you have to do the equal scrutiny to the Biden administration. That's all. Mm -hmm. And I'm not seeing that going on. But let me get back to the insider trading story. So we do this story. It was totally legal for congressmen and senators to go to closed door hearings, get private information, wow. then call up their stockbroker and buy and sell accordingly. That was totally legal. Totally legal to do. And so they one guy thought it was wrong and proposed a piece of legislation. He only had 13 co-sponsors. You could get more co-sponsors to sort of fly kites than you could do for something like this. So we do the story, and we find out that Nancy Pelosi, who's speaker, right, that her husband had gotten a, a uh, IPO in Visa, credit card company, and three days made 150000 bucks on it, right? And so we wanted to interview her about it. And this is at the same time they had major credit card legislation winding its way through Congress, which, by the way, strangely got delayed that was going to regulate the credit card mm. industry. This is at the same time she's collecting on the, on the IPO. Mm. So they didn't want to do an interview, so we go to the press conference. And something amazing happened. Did you we ever try to interview her directly? Oh, yeah, 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 we did. We, we, we staked out her apartment in Georgetown. Did we, she do an interview with it? So the press secretary said, we'll come to the press conference like everybody else. You could ask a question. So Croft is on the front row. I'm sitting about right behind Steve, Steve Croft, Croft who is the correspondent. And, and he starts asking her questions. And I, something amazing happened. Everybody kept quiet. They just kept uh, allowing Croft to hit her with question after question. It went viral. Wow. Everyone. And the, the legislation went from 13 to over 200 co-sponsors. Wow. I had uh, Gillibrand and Congress Senator Brown of Massachusetts fighting over who's going to propose it in the Senate. Senate. Obama mentions it in the State of the Union. Mm -hmm. I'm invited to the, when it's signed into law, I'm invited to the signing ceremony at the White House. I think life is good. What happens? Two, three months later, through voice vote, they rescind it, and it's business back to usual. Wow. So now wow. it's once again, you know, legal for these guys to do you this. You know, and even, even, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but you know, the American public question, like even with our president, and, and I'm, this is non-political, I mean, you get a guy like President Obama who had no, no value, and now all of a sudden he's worth $250 million. But it seems as though public office as, as a congressperson or the presidency is pretty lucrative. Well, you know, the, you, you mentioned Obama. I mean, one of the things that people don't realize that the opiate epidemic was, grew and grew and grew during the eight years that he was president. Mm. I mean, what they were doing is they were busting like crooked doctors who would be over-prescribing pills, but they weren't going after the corporate corporations. The, the, the big pharma the companies big pharma making guy. You know why? Because the, the attorney general at the time, Eric Holter, had represented them. You have thousands 
and thousands of lobbyists in Washington. Right. I have a little experience with exactly that. Exactly right. And they control everything that these senators and congressmen do, and they give them money. Both. And so they both. write the bill. They write the bill, and then they hand it to the guy, and it's thank you very much. Unbelievable. And a lot of people don't, you know, I was hired by Big Farmer in 2003 during the drug uh, the drug bill right. when they were trying to get it passed. That's when we bought all the drugs online and I followed it back to Kashmir, Pakistan with the counterfeit drugs that the kids were buying online. And I went to a competitor of yours, uh, Nightly News with, who was the most famous Nightly News guy? Broker. Tom Brokaw come to my house with my kids ordering online Oxycontin and all that, and then they come three days later. My, my point is, Big Pharma wanted that drug bill to pass. Absolutely. And then they hired me, and then they, I actually became a lobbyist where I lobbied for the United States senators to go along and pass the bill. So, I mean, in reality, the only beneficial thing I had is to alert people of the dangers of kids ordering drugs online. And that's why I did it. I also made a lot of money, a few million dollars, but the reality was every time I called up a senator, because of Imus in the morning, who was all over Washington, they sure. listened to him religiously, I was able to get an audience with 40 United States senators and getting them to pass so, the bill. So one other story I did on these, these congressmen and senators, they had something called a leadership pack. And yeah. a leadership pack is people contribute to the pack, and then they're supposed to do something that advances their leadership within yeah. Congress. They were doing it to go to golf courses in Scotland. They were hiring their, their kids in the office and paying them out of their leadership pack money. So we did this big expose of these uh, congressmen and senators. One person actually loaned her campaign money back and charges 19% a rate for the loan. Croft, when he confronted her, said that's even more than the mafia charges for, yeah, for usury. You know, usury. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, I could, I could have spent my entire career doing just, stories just about, political about political corruption in Washington. And let me tell you something, it's gotten, not gotten any better. No, and, 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 and we see it all the time. Even we, we see with these, uh, these infrastructure bills right. and this proposal, oh boy. Oh boy. and then the next proposal of the next bill, which is stuffed with just public money for everybody. And then all of a sudden you start to see now, the big thing now, and I guarantee you, there's a lot of congressmen and senators that are involved with renewable energy, energy companies, and all of a sudden they're pushing this renewable energy. I'd like to find out who's holding positions in stocks. This would be your story. Totally. If I was the new Don Yuda, I'd say, who, Ira, who, let's go after him. Who's giving out a trillion dollars in money and not having a structure like hiring someone like you, Bo, to say, why don't you just make sure that the money is being going to the right places, is not being misspent? Gonna, there's going to be so much corruption in this in this uh, even with the even with the even with oh the infrastructure. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's going to be so much corruption, so much money. And going. no one sets in place. You're giving out trillions of dollars now. No one sets in place, and you know what the waste factor is. Probably. 30% waste right, every right. day, and no one sets into place the investigation. Well, who is this? What is, this, is this guy? For well, you know, exactly. you're going to have all my uh, my Italian uh, businessmen will be involved. Organized crime exactly. will come back. Fat Tony will dig them up, and he'll be in charge of the concrete for the new tunnel. He totally <laughs> will be. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's it's already known it's going to happen. Now, talking about organized crime, yeah, you did an interview, and I remember it, and. Uh, a little less a family than I like. I like the I like the Genovese family. Okay. I think because I grew up uh, with uh, a 
friends of theirs with Ralph Scopo in oh, New yeah. York. He was the catalyst behind the whole commission case. So I'm, I'm very familiar with that. And all of a sudden, you had your interview with Bonanno, and that was the, it was in 83, if I remember. Wow, good memory. 83, and then all of a sudden, the friggin' axe came down. The axe of uh, uh, El Giuliano, my friend, when he indicted the five crime families. Now, a lot of people don't know what that whole indictment was about. It started with your interview. That's exactly Showing right. the, the families, even though Bonanno went, he went back to Arizona there, he was living his happy days. But that brought the attention to organized crime. Really totally being right. Real. No, what happened was he drew a picture for me of the five families. and he I could have driven that. No, I, I understand. But to have the one of the heads of the families actually do it and then sign it. Yeah. And and so so I told Giuliani, who I was friendly with when he was attorney general, I mean U.S. attorney, yeah. and I mentioned this. So immediately he throws the subpoena at me. You know, he wants to subpoena this thing. I said, yeah. just stop it. Why you you don't need ask this. me a go, question? Yeah, yeah. Go, just go go get Joe. So he went out to Arizona, and suddenly Joe got sick. He was in the hospital. But he opened up to you. He opened he up did to a me. Did a full hour on you. Yeah. And the next thing is when Giuliani, as the United States attorney, goes, "Hamana, hamana, hamana." Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. happened. So we do the interview with Wallace. He flies in, flies out. Joe and I are having cognac in the back. And I say, you know, Joe, I'm a Jewish And cigars? And cigars are just no, cognac? No, he didn't. No, just cognac. Okay. He, he liked his cognac and watching the sunset. He had a little shitty pool. He was, you know, like a waiting pool. Oh, sorry. He stupid. He actually, obviously, didn't take enough money. Yeah. But go ahead. Whatever. So he, he's up. He's, uh, I said to him, Jewish kid growing up in New York, guys I admired was Sandy Koufax and Meyer Lansky. And he, I said, was Lansky that good of a money guy? And he looked at me, he said, he had the picture. I said, what are you talking about, the picture? He had the picture of J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson, his deputy, having sex together. Well, and and, and this the, was a rumor now, it's factual. It was, and it that was, was one of the things the wise guys had on J. Edgar Hoover for not to bother him. Exactly right, that's exactly right. Wow. And so he said, that was his value to us, he had the picture. But he looked at me like I'm an idiot, everybody knows about the picture. The next thing I said, who killed JFK? And he said, when, when the assassination went down, I called up to Tra Santos Traficante, who ran the Chicago outfit voice. out of Florida. Now, Florida. And he said, so what's going on? He said, listen, Florida and New Orleans will take the heat on this, meaning Carlos Marcello. New York is, a, is This clean. is now, ladies and gentlemen, listen. This is coming out of the mouth of one of the five crime family heads, Joe Bonanno. Go Who ahead. goes back to Lucky Luciano and Al Capone. And so he says, so he sent somebody down to talk to Traficante, and he said, we tried to kill Kennedy in Florida. It didn't work out. So then we took care of him in Texas. And Just you know like what? that. Just like that. And, but you got to understand, these guys were businessmen. It's not like you and I would, oh, tell me more. No, they just move on. Okay, I get it. Okay, and now we move on. Next thing. And, uh, you know, that's the way they operated. You know, for whacking, you know, once when they get the vote and they do this and then they send out the contract, they move on to other business. Yeah, and, 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 you know, again, to, to get on the in-scoop of that, and then the fact was Ralph Scopel, who I grew up with, his son was a heroin addict. A lot of people didn't know in the early 60s in Ozone Park where I grew up, the Italian kids there were heroin, a lot of heroin lot addicts, of heroin. including Ralph Scopo Jr., who was only at that time maybe 14 years old. I was one of the only kids that wasn't shooting up. So the father, Ralph, he took a liking to me because I was built like a brick shit house. He wanted me to hang around with his kid because he knew I wasn't putting shit in my arm. 
And then all of a sudden, when I saw the whole story, he told me when I became a cop, you know, Bo, you can't come into the club anymore. I said, you're like a father to me. And then I started, I really didn't focus on that, on organized crime, but I knew him. I was able to go to the Copacabana on my prom and they look for Louis Lip and get a front table there. Of course, Ralph Scopo sent me. And then the next thing that happens, I realized Ralph Scopo was the catalyst of all five crime families taking down the indictment. If you read the original indictment of the commissioning case, on and around about 1930, Maserati, all that stuff, and they actually set up the organization and the formalization of the five crime families. So Ralph Scopo was the one that controlled all the construction unions in New York. Right. He was the bagman for all five crime families, including Joey uh, Bonanno, all of those guys over there. So that was the, the RICO was used on that to show the organization and use the RICO law to wipe them out. And that kind of that kind of destroyed organized crime. So when that commission yeah. case happened, I went down to the courthouse. You had sent me down there and I go up to Fat Tony Salerno and I say, I'd like you on 60 Minutes, he spits at me. All right, that didn't go well. Then I go into the courtroom and I go to see um, Paul Castellano. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to Paul Castellano and I give him my business card and he's looking at it and he starts rolling it up and then he starts picking his teeth with it. <laughs> and I said, I guess he's not gonna go on 60 Minutes. And then I go back to Hewitt and I tell him about it. He said, you should have given the guy a toothpick. What are you doing? <laughs> so anyway, but I've been chasing these guys all my life and stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the one that I probably am proudest of was the John Gotti Jr. interview. We yeah, did. Well, let, well, let's talk about that a little bit because that touched upon my life, too. I know. And like I said, I grew up with the father. I knew the kid was almost his whole life. And I grew up in that same neighborhood. And the thing was, the father was always nice to me. He used to always call me Boda Cop. And then when he got out of jail in the early 80s, we used to go to La Camellia, I had that dinner. Sure. I almost had a fist fight with Sammy Gravano when I was at Denoy, and oh, I was yeah. waiting for John to have dinner, this is when I retired, and I, I don't hide nothing about it. Do I know John Gotti? And when I got a, my George Bush was gonna nominate me for the uh, Drug Commission, sure. to be the head of the Drug Commission, and the next thing is, they did a round robin. Bump, pops up, Bo Deedle knows all these gangsters. Next thing is I was hanging out with Jim Fox, the assistant director of the FBI, New York office. Of course. Ray Kelly, Commissioner Kelly. And we used to go out to dinner with their wives and all that. And the next thing is, I say to Jim Fox, I said, I got a problem. They did a round robin. All this crap pops up. A lot of people don't understand. They had investigators. Sometimes they would drop what they call dimes on people. A lot of people were jealous of my career because Nick put me on the uh, cover of New York Magazine. All that. And they would throw stuff in there. Oh, Bo's a made guy in the Lucchese family. First of all, I wouldn't be. If I was going to be a made member, it would be the uh, Genovese family. I like them better. But the point was, uh, Jim Fox wrote you know, uh, a letter to the president and to federal judge Reggie Walton, who was doing the round, round robin, said, I'll put my reputation of being assistant director of the FBI. We've investigated Bo upside down and inside out. Bo knows everybody, but he has no organized crime involvement of any kind of illegal activity. People which think I never that because did. you know these people, yeah. you're, you're somehow involved with these people and stuff. They and, picked up a wire. This is the point I want to. They picked up a wire that I actually heard Joe Coffey was my sergeant. Sure. And they had picked, they picked up a wire with Fat Tony in the Colonial. Right. This is after we locked up the two guys, my partner Tommy and I, that raped the nun, carved 27 crosses. So we were the I heroes. We were the heroes of all the. <laughs> we were heroes of all the wise guys. So he's picked up on a wire. 
He had a cigar in his mouth. He goes, I don't want you guys, he's talking to his, friend, his guys, I don't want you effing guys to ask Mo Dino or his effing Irish partner for a license plate check. You keep them away from our thing and don't, I don't want them getting in trouble with our shit, all right? This was Fat Tony. So that was actually on tape. So goes up to the president's office. I get a call into Frederick, uh, Reggie Walton says, very good, you got this letter, you'll be, uh, it'll be announced that you're gonna get this appointment. Uh, you're gonna be, uh, and I said, well, I got it, right? Uh, not so fast, there's Senate confirmation. I said, what's Senate confirmation? And they tell me everything's gonna come on. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You I call up Doro Bush, who is uh, George Bush's daughter. Right. And I, I, I wanna meet with the president. I said, Mr. President, I, don't, I really would like you to give me an appointment. I don't wanna go through Senate confirmation. And I told Bernie Kerrick, when he got nominated for that, do not do it. And that was his Achilles heel and his downfall. People don't realize, you go for Senate confirmation, you better be cleaner than the Board of Health. That's totally true. That's totally true. When we, but just getting back to the Gotti Jr., right? So yeah. I go to, I'm courting him. I want him on 60 Minutes, right? And you got to remember, Gotti Jr. ran the, the uh, crime family for a longer time than Allegedly. his father did. Than his father did. Well, according yeah. to, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I go down to the court. He was on trial three times. All, you know, he got, they were all mistrials. And I go see him, and I wave to him, and I start winking at him. And Charlie Carnese was his attorney, big yeah. fat guy. May he rest in peace. But Charlie died? Yeah, Charlie died. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, so Charlie, John, who's that guy? He's a 60 Minutes guy. He wants to do an interview with you. And John says, listen, first off, I'm not doing no interview in the 60 Minutes. And two, I'm not going to do no interview with some guy who's winking at me. I haven't been in jail that long. Somebody's making a pass at me. So he said, Iris soon started courting me like a bride, which I did. I would like go to the courthouse. I was speaking to you if I, if I had any influence with that. Yeah, of course, I was working it. And I'd wave to him and every day, and then after a while he'd motion for me to come over, he'd give me some kisses on the cheek, he said, anything I could do for you. What do you mean, anything? You're in jail, what do you mean you do for me? And then people would come over, they start seeing John kissing me, they started kissing me. I had to bring a handkerchief to the courtroom mm -hmm. to wipe off all of the saliva, right? And so after a while we start going out and we had, you know, he, 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 he eventually agreed to the uh, interview. And let me tell you something, it was the most probably watched. the most watched, best interview. Croft said it was the best interview he'd ever done in his life. And yeah. he had a long well, the career. way you guys edit things, and let's, like I say, no, 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 it how was, many hours it was, was that, approximately? It was about three hours. That's it? Yep, three-hour interview. He, he limited his, he had three attorneys there watching the interview. They limited to three hours, and it ran, it started off running as two parts and ended up running as a full hour. Mm -hmm. And it was just that's quite unusual to get a full hour on full 60 hour minutes. in sixty. That's how good this thing was. Yeah, and, and I well, you know, and one of the reasons why he was acquitted was moi here is when Elite, what do you call John Alight? Alight, when he comes and he goes, he knows me. I I don't remember ever I meeting remember this that. guy. And then he says he saw me as a New York detective in 1986, uh, giving information and getting money from Richard Gotti on a car wash. And then I go like this. I had a news conference with Joe Coffey where he actually said Alite, Alite, whatever his name is, that we were taking money and all that. We had a news conference. And I says, well, look, it. if this guy can lie about me and Joe Coffey, exactly. uh, nothing he says has any credibility. One little problem. I was a New York City detective. I retired February 15th. 
1985. This is in 1986. One little more problem. I was running for United States Congress at the time. So if this guy could out and out lie about more. Well, the, the government made up this witness protection program thing where you could have committed 15 murders the way they like yeah. may have done, and you get a pass. Just tell a good story, make up a story yeah. about, about Bo or John yeah. Jr., and you get a pass. You're a free man. You could go run your own pizza parlor. You could do whatever you want. And that's the rules that they set up. So guess what? So the, these guys come in and tell, tell make-up stories. That was a great interview. And I, like I said, I know Junior, and yeah. I like him. He sees me. We do the movie stuff together. And, and yeah. I, I have respect for him. He has respect back for me. He's got good family. He's His got kid, a good family. The one kid's a great boxer. Great boxer. Unbelievable. And, and I, let me tell you something. John is totally dedicated to him. Let me tell you. The guy I'll, has to make weight. John is in the, in the sweat box. Losing and I'm going to tell you something kids. else. He was smart. He got away from it. And everybody says, oh, no, 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 bullshit. He got away from it. He realized one thing. His family and his life is ahead of him. Right. There's a lot of a lot of guys have walked away rather than being incarcerated for the rest of their lives. I'm happy he got away. I wish him the best for his family yeah. and his kids. Yeah. And that box is very good. Now, let's go off this. Let's, let's think about it. all these years, 25 years. What was one of your most interesting 60-minute segments that you put together? Well, I mean, there were there were really so many of them, but that's I, like saying which kid you like best. But right. which one jumps out? The one I think that I that I do look back on with you know with you know because it took a while was Steve Bannon, believe it or not. Ah, not a friend of us. Yeah, well, my life touches on every on everybody. Yeah, stories. but again, what I, I met Steve, uh, you know, years before he associated with Trump, and I was trying to do Roger Ailes. I was trying to profile Ailes, yeah. and Bannon would blow into town. Another one of see, my friends. Uh, I know, I know he. I know he was, and he was a good friend of yours. Yeah, and. And I was trying. I was working to get Ailes, and I got to meet Bannon. And then after a while, I kind of lost touch with him. But then um, I think you may have said to me that uh, that he's now associating with Trump and advising Trump about a presidential run. Bannon. Bannon did. Yeah. You called me up and told me something along the lines that yeah. him and Roger Stone were involved in this thing. Yeah. So I call up Bannon, and I'm supposed to meet him at Ted Turner's restaurant. He didn't show up, and I said, "Where were you?" He said, "Brother, I was there." He, by the way, he never calls you by the first name. It's either brother. brother or whatever. So, I, we, next day we meet for breakfast. He walks and he looks like a bum. Greasy. He's got a greasy. He never wants to look. He's got this working man's thing. He's wearing a backpack. He's Steve needs it. I gotta buy him some shampoo for friggin' Christmas. He, he, yeah. he needs to wash his hair. He needs to, yeah, yeah, and, or shave or do yeah. something, you know. So he sits down and he says, "I'm running the Trump campaign." And I look at him and I said, "There was so much wrong with this scene. Here was this guy, looked like he came out of a sewer, sitting down at breakfast with me, telling me he's around, around to run the Trump campaign." And sure enough, in a short while, he ended up being the one who got Paul Manafort fired. He took over Manafort's job in the campaign. Mm -hmm. And I go down one Saturday, and he says, come up to Trump Tower. We took it over. Kellyanne Conway is next door. Steve has the corner office. Yeah. We go up there, and it was the old set. They took over the old set of uh, where the, of apprentice, the apprentice of the apprentice. Now, Trump, immediately when he took it over, raised the rent on his, on his place, right? On himself, On yeah. himself, he yeah. raised the rent. And he didn't want to put posters up on the wall because he didn't want to ruin the paint. Because he, he didn't know how long it would be. He'd have to well, re-rent it. was very it. odd. I mean, it was very lavishly decorated. It was, yeah. There's a lot of gold leaf in it. And I was trying to do a documentary. I wanted to do sort of inside the campaign. It was, it was going to be, um, you know, him follow, following him around and following Steve and following Kellyanne Conway. And... 
Steve was totally into it. He said, yeah, we'll debut it in Sundance. We'll get Trump to come. I said, he'll be president. He'll be busy. Are you kidding? He's going to love coming to his own movie. It'll be great. Yeah. Jared shot it down. Ah. Uh-huh. And, but anyway, but we kept in touch. And yeah, you I were would, always trying to, you kept calling me about getting Trump. Oh, I was desperate to get Trump, absolutely. Mm. But uh, instead, I ended up with Bannon. So I'd fly to Washington on Saturdays, and Jared would be observing the Sabbath. Pre, uh, Brian Priebus, who is now chief of staff, would be have a date night with his wife, and Steve and I would hang out in the West Wing, drinking sodas. He doesn't drink liquor, and uh, we would talk. He looks like a friggin' drunk. Well, Coca Cola. No, but he Cola. looks like a drunk. Yeah, he he does because he's yeah, yeah, always yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, And yeah. then we began to meet at this uh, house, which Breitbart, the news service, was at the basement mm-hmm. of in uh, on Capitol Hill, and we would just share stories, and he'd tell me stuff. And the day we were to do the Trump interview, he finally agreed. He got fired. He's agreed to do the interview with us on 60 Minutes. And uh, the night before, because I've been hearing both sides of this story from him for a while, and I said, so do you want to kill him or kiss him, talking about Trump? Yeah. And he said, I haven't figured it out yet. So I said, well, you got 24 hours. We're doing the interview tomorrow, so you better figure it out fast. Yeah. He ended up kissing him during the interview. Yeah. But that's the way Steve was. And he was, he was always kind of one of the smartest, most interesting guys. People don't know, you know, he was, I think, with Navy Intelligence. He was, right? Yeah, and he, he was uh, a Goldman Sachs Yeah, he's a really smart guy. And yeah. Don't take that away from uh, no, Steve no. Bannon. And now, now of course, they're but using this. But now he's gone a little, you know. Yeah, but now what they're doing with him is over the trials. top. I mean, with the yeah. whole thing of what the selectives enforce. If I was on you today again, you know, I would send you out on our, I'd say, do me a favor. Do an investigation on this Fugazi, uh report on Donald Trump. Which one? The, the one that they got the, the warrant on. Oh. The eavesdropping warrant. I would put you on there, follow it back to, follow it back to Moscow, follow it right up, get this one, uh, the one making the allegation, rip that apart. Steel. That would have been a great one to rip up, and that would have been a ground ball easy one, I think. No. Yeah. Steele ended up doing an interview with Stephanopoulos, and it was not a very impressive uh, interview. No, and, and, and I think I saw that, and, and but I, that, that could have been done really, really well. Right. Like I said, I like I said, you know what? 60 Minutes, what I love about it is there should have been a, a lot more stories that were less lefty, more righty. Well, you know what? They, they each side looks into what they want to see. The, yeah. the person who wanted. Well, you direct. First, I mean, but I you. Was pr- I always played it straight down the middle. But did you and have? You were a major producer there. Right. But you got your orders from Hewitt too. No, no? And it wasn't orders. You know what? What the way it works is a producer comes up with a story. Yeah. And sometimes you get a suggestion from Don back in those days, or Mike. I work with Mike Wallace mainly. Yeah. And Mike would suggest something. Uh, but for the most what of the time... What were we going to do? We were going to do something. Was, was it my run for mayor? We were going to do something, and I asked you about it, and it was going to be quite an interesting thing. It may have been that, yeah. but, it, you know, like, and, and even some of the topics. You know, I understand the viewing audiences across the board, so you don't like to use, you know, one political direction, but my thing is political corruption, you could just have one 
We could do a news magazine, political corruption. Probably be the most watched thing. No. Oh my God! When I, you know, I've been speaking a little bit for the book, yeah. and when I go out there, people are literally bending over on their seats, waiting to, for me to tell more political corruption stories. Well, everybody's they can't interested. Get enough in, of it. But what you just said, one thing I caught out of this whole interview was, yeah. why aren't there safeguards put in place with all this infrastructure money, all these other monies? Why don't they have like an IG uh, that would be able to f vet? the people that are going for the money, find out who they are, what they are, and how you're gonna spend the money. I, I we could save, if it's three trillion total, say, I guarantee we save a trillion dollars on fraud and uh, misappropriation. I did the first interview with a lobbyist, Jack Abramoff. Remember oh, Jack yeah, Abramoff? Yeah, yeah. We did I Leslie, remember Stahl, that one, yeah. Leslie Stahl and I and, and did the first interview, and he said he basically bought most of Congress, and he said he was disappointed that he couldn't buy all of Congress. But he he was uh, he had a great listen to this scam. You're gonna love this scam, classic scam. So he'd get the Indians to be a client, and then he'd get a congressman to put a prohibitive piece of, of clause in an amendment that that screws the Indians. Then he goes to the congressman, pays them off. Wow. Congressman removes the clause. Indians are jubilant. They they give him his big fee. So. Indians are happy they got the clause. The congressman is happy because wow. he got paid off. And Abraham, wow. of course, took the money from them as a client. Wow. So he used to run this scam. You know, I, uh, we're, we're, we're going to wind down eventually here soon. But, you know, for the audience, I just want to give them some of the stories that are in this book. And, and believe me, I'll be reading it this weekend again uh, thoroughly. Uh, you know, who with the bosses of the Gambia, we talked about Bonanno, Steve Bannon, we talked about the uh, Trump's uh, visit with the Pope. And then you have uh, the untold story about the Rosenbergs. Were they really behind the Soviets getting the atomic bomb or, or were they just scapegoats? Secret conversations with my favorite, Marlon Brando, Oh, yeah. Maya Lansky, details of Melania Trump's uh, post-nuptial uh, 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 operation there. Wealthy Republicans, Rebecca Mercer and her husband. And it, and it goes on and on. And these stories are so interesting that you can't put the book down. I didn't open it yet. I just read excerpts, but I really am looking forward to reading it this weekend because it's so interesting. I think people will learn so much about uh, you know, the inner workings of what 60 Minutes is all about. And let's just, for the last couple of minutes that sure. we have left, let's just talk about Dan Rather with his funkitation uh, when he really screwed up there. A little bit about Dan. Well, I, I always liked Dan. I mean, Dan was a true reporter. I, I went the first time, uh, one of the first times I'd met him, he was, he was on a plane down going down to Washington. I said, what are you yeah. doing? You're shooting a story. He said, no, I'm doing some reporting. And I said, you, you mean you got nothing to shoot? You're just going down to do reporting? And that's the way Dan was. Well, he was with me on, on, on Lexington Avenue and 112th Street with the drug problem. Yeah. Back, in the, back in the late 80s, Dan Rather did me two nights in a row over there with all the drug problems in East Harlem. Right. And Dan was right on the street with me. I like Dan, and I still can't believe that he screwed up like that. On the George Bush story yeah. that, that he ended up doing. Yeah, I mean, there was... There was a big investigation. I'm about sure, him. you know, I he do investigations up, too. I'm sure. sure you've got to really do your checks and rechecks on all these my, stories. My basic formula was that if a lawsuit happened, who's your witnesses and who's going to be their witnesses? And if their witnesses weigh more than your witnesses, you've got to be really, really careful yeah. before you proceed. 
And, and I don't think when he did that story that they weighed that out enough. What was one of the biggest stories for 60 Minutes that was quashed? Uh, we never quashed anything. Because if, the, I mean, the story that, that got the most notice was the tobacco story that was ended up make, being made it into a movie. So whatever became of that, it That's ended up getting one, like you know, the, five. The tobacco, Ira Rosen. I you, didn't do that one. I didn't well, no, do but you one. were with 60 Minutes then, right? I was, no, I was at ABC at that point. I had left and I was at ABC so at that time. So you fucking lost that one then. Huh? You lost that story. That story, no, actually Peter Jennings ended up doing the same story, but it didn't get as much publicity. Yeah. Well, like you say, Ira, you know, I know you for a lot, a lot of years. Yeah. I'm really proud that you're my, fr I could say you're my friend. And I think this is one of the most interesting books about one of the best TV shows of mine in your lifetime. It's true. And I just, uh, it's, it's out by Martin Press. And the ticking clock, it's behind the scenes of 60 Minutes with my friend Ira Rosen. I really want to thank you for coming in today. Hey. We might do this again because there's so much stuff. Oh, we didn't even get into... We discrepted a, a top. Yeah, we, we, you didn't even ask me any, any of the really hard questions you could have asked. I know. That'll be for the next segment. All right. We'll have you back. All right. Thank Sounds you, Ira. good. Thank you very much. Sure. And everybody, I want to thank you for uh, tuning into our podcast, One Tough Podcast, and we have very interesting guests. And I think that Ira is probably, if he'll crack his head open... He's got a lot of shit in there. <laughs> and I look forward to our next segment. Thanks again, Ira. All right, thank you for having All right. me. All right, guys. That was great, Bo. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was 41 minutes. That yeah. was good. You can't go too long with a podcast. No, you can't.